you would this morning turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As Brother Joe was praying and specifically, specifically asked blessing for Sister Patricia, my mind, uh, as I think about her, you know, the Bible says we're not to praise ourselves, but let another man praise thee. If you want to know or see a biblical model of a daughter, a mother, and a wife, I know no better example than Sister Patricia Varnum. Uh, she goes about faithfully and quietly ministering, and I've never one time in all the land, many people don't know what all she does because uh, she doesn't tell about it, but that young lady works around the clock many times, and I've never heard her complain one time about doing it, but she does it with thanksgiving that the Lord has blessed her to be able. So if you need an example of how to be a good child to your parents and a good spouse and a good parent, we have many good examples, but uh, I think one that shines out the greatest would be Sister Patricia. So The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ did be you reconciled to God. For he hath made him, meaning God, hath made Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And he, God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Two weeks ago, we looked at the eternal phase of salvation, which captures the doctrine of God's foreknowledge, God's election, and also the predestination of God's saints. And then last week, we looked at the issue of original sin and our depravity, the need of salvation. <laughs> because we were plunged in sin by our father Adam, and we were uh, conceived in sin, born sinners, actively show ourselves sinners throughout our life, it is without doubt and without question for anybody who is reasonable thinking that we live in a fallen world and if man could contrive a way uh, to, uh, to salvage what's been broken, surely after about six to 7,000 years of being on this earth, it would have been found. And man cannot do it. In fact, the Lord Jesus, after he spoke to the rich young ruler who came to him and said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord said, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but God. He's asking him, Are you saying that I'm God? And Jesus begins to quote to him the law of Moses, but he leaves one out, and that is covetousness, because that was the young man's issue. But anyway... After that young man was told that he was to sell his possession and give all that he had to the poor, it says he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. Uh, but the Bible says in Mark that Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And so I contend he's a child of God, but he loved his riches more than he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his problem. And there's times that we love things more than we love Jesus, and that's just the reality. And after he went away... Jesus says to the disciples, it's easier for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle than a rich man the kingdom of God. 
And what Jesus was saying there is most wealthy people in this world are going to choose their wealth over God's kingdom. And then the disciples said, well, then who then can be saved? He says, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. If there's any uh, verse to let us know that the matter of our salvation being uh, completed on our part, being a complete impossibility, that verse tells us so. With men, this is impossible. Who then can be saved, they ask. He says, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. As we looked last week, you and I are conceived in sin because our father Adam fell in sin. And sin passed upon all because all have sinned. So you and I, we were conceived in iniquity. Uh, here we come into the world sinners. And before long, we display the fact that we're a sinner. Even in our infancy, we began to show that we are sinners. And then as soon as we began to crawl around and can reach and as soon as we can walk and as soon as we can talk, uh, before long we show it in our speech and also our activity. Um, I have a friend that I used to work with. Uh, he's with the company I was with and I keep up with him. He has a, a little boy that's a little older than uh, Hailey Ann and so I'll ask how uh, he's doing. He's Right now he's so excited because his little boy is uh, pulling himself up and getting ready to start maybe taking steps. I said, well, here's the thing. I said, I've heard the saying it's true. I said, for the first uh, year or so, uh, you wish they'll walk. And then in the first two years, you wish they'd talk. I said, in the, the next 16, you wish they would sit down and shut up. And so that's just the way that parenting goes. Uh, you want them to walk and talk, and then you want them to sit down and hush. And so uh, anyway, uh, the fact is we are sinners, and some can say that they're not. In fact, there are some that believe, that claim the title Christian that that you can live so godly that you will finally become holy, not only in the new man, the inner part, but in your whole being. There are groups uh, in our world today that believe that, embrace that as their theological viewpoint, and that if you truly are a child of God, you're going to get to that point, that you will be holy before you leave this world. And I'm saying body, soul, and spirit. Now, for Bible readers and uh, people who really understand the word of God, we know that there is a part of us that will not be made holy until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just the reality. And our, our own struggle day by day proves to us that we're still sinners. And even for those who believe that uh, about uh, if you live like you ought to for the Lord, there'll come a point you just don't sin anymore and you're not capable of sinning anymore. Then as Sonny Piles asked this lady one time who believed that, he says, then why do you have wrinkles and gray hair? If you're not a sinner anymore, why is your body decaying? And that's, uh, of course, she didn't like that uh, at all. But, uh, but if you're finally so holy that uh, sin's not even an impact to your body anymore, why is the body still aging? Why does it die? Because sin is still there. The Bible lets us know through the mouth of the words of James, he says that lust, when it's conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Sin will not be finished until our death or the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just how it is. Um, and so we have to contend with it on not just a daily basis, but every single moment of our life here on earth. But, so we saw that before the world began, God obviously knew we were going to be in a fallen state. What's amazing to me is that knowing that, he created man anyway. If I had been God and I had seen what man would do with the creation and that that act of man would require 
the life of my son to come into the creation that he spoke into existence, become subject to it, live under its law, live under uh, the dominion of society and so forth. If, if I had known that, I just wouldn't have created it to start with. So talk about the miraculous mercy and grace of God. If, it, if, if I had been in charge and I knew what Adam would have done, none of us would have ever existed. That's where it would have been. But that is not the God we serve. In spite of God seeing ahead that Adam would sin and it would require the death of his son, he still made this world anyway. But he did so with provision. As we looked at the eternal phase of salvation, he foreknew us in love. He committed himself to us before the world began. He chose us out of all the race of Adam. And then he also predestinated us to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be adopted into the family of God. So now... Uh, that's what happened before the world began. That's a, a transaction, a covenant that God made with God before the world began. Now, you and I were parties in the covenant in a passive sense only, uh, just a name. Now, that's enough, and, and that's a wonderful blessing. But all of that at that point is theoretical, if you will. Now, God being God, when he makes a promise, it's certain, it's sure it's going to come to pass, but it still has to... The physical and legal transaction still has to occur. So God makes the world. Man falls. And again, just because God knew about it and because God made provision for it does not mean that God is the one at fault because of it. He is not. He gave Adam a, a choice. He put in Adam the ability to obey. But he also gave him a commandment. Say, why did God do that to start with? It shows that God is a moral being. By God giving a moral law at the beginning of creation that man could keep or man could ignore, it shows that God is a moral governor over this world, and it also testifies that he made man uh, to have his own will and to think for himself and to act for himself, hopefully within the will of God. But Adam did not. Adam, by his will, knowingly uh, went into the sin. The Bible makes it clear that uh, Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. He knew full well what he was doing. He was not ignorant as he took of that fruit uh, that his wife uh, presented to him. He did so willfully, and there he violated the command of God. It was the moral command of God. And here now he has plunged himself into immorality. Not immorality, immorality. That's where Adam stood. So now... Uh, the matter's got to be resolved. The matter's got to be fixed. God has chosen a people. He has said, I love them. And in Jeremiah 31, he says, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And so if God has loved us with an everlasting love, and by that knowledge and love of us, he also says, I'm going to choose them out from the race of Adam, and I'm also going to determine now, before the world begins, that they're going to be with me in glory, in the image of my son, as part of my family. Something has to be done to correct the matter of our fallen nature. And so here the Apostle Paul addresses that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now we could go earlier into the chapter, and we'll see where... And verse saying, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That means the actual work of reconciliation. Understand that God did that through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to it that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Talking about fallen uh, elect people. 
He says, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Thank God. <laughs> you know, David asked the question in Psalm 130, says, where would we be if God would mark iniquity? He said, who should stand? Obviously none of us. But he says, God is not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. There is a big difference in the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. As a minister of the gospel, there is a work to be done. Obviously, preaching the word is one of the primary functions of the ministry of the gospel. But that is still a work in the sense of my job. But in the ministry of reconciliation, the work of reconciliation, that was all done by God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That means the gospel or the good news of the fact that we are reconciled to God. So then he says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. So here we stand as emissaries for the Lord Jesus Christ, not to perform the work of reconciliation, but to proclaim the fact that reconciliation has occurred by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So he says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. But he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now he says, we're ambassadors. And here's the point of the ambassadors, to speak the message that God has given. When the president of the United States appoints an ambassador to the United Nation or any nation throughout the world, United Nations or any nation through the world, they're not there on their own behalf. They're not supposed to speak their own will nor their own desires. They're there representing the government and the people of the United States of America. And so they're supposed to speak the wishes of the government and the people of this nation to whatever nation they may be appointed to. They're not there to do whatever they want. And so you and I as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have free reign to say what we want or to do what we want. If we're going to be ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is a particular message that's been committed to us to speak, and that is that we have been reconciled to God. That means we have been brought back together in a state of uh, contentment and peace with God the Father by the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. He says, now... We pray you in Christ that be you reconciled to God. So the whole point of the word of reconciliation is so that you and I will understand we've been reconciled to God, by God, and we ought to live as reconciled people. We ought to be reconciled in our own mind that God has been reconciled to us. Now, what's more important, you being reconciled to God or God being reconciled with you? It's obviously much more important that God is reconciled with you. Now, your enjoyment in life today is going to be much, much improved if you realize that fact and you'll be reconciled to God. Your life in heaven depends on him being reconciled to you, not you to him. So anyway, now he goes on and lets us know how this happens. It's called the doctrine of substitution. So you and I have a substitute. I remember back in school when a substitute teacher came in. Now, I understand that in, in today's world, substitute teachers are actually required or supposed to actually teach whatever lessons that the teacher has left. That didn't happen when I was in school. When, uh, when we came in, there was already a TV. I don't remember if y'all remember those carts that had the TVs on them. They'd be rolled in. Well, we knew we had a substitute teacher for the day uh, because uh, our teacher, but there was someone to stand in their place. Now, obviously, 
the Lord Jesus as the substitute didn't just come in and uh, do nothing. That's not the substitute we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Herein we see the doctrine of substitution. Jesus took the place where we were supposed to be, and through that transaction that happened on the cross, instead of us having our transgressions imputed to us, put to our account, what happens? The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ instead is imputed to you and me. So when the Lord Jesus Christ stood as our substitute at Calvary's cross, God judged him, and through the judgment of him being uh, pronounced guilty, you and I who were justly condemned have now been made free by the work of reconciliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now at the cross of Calvary, he does more than stand as our substitute. He's also the propitiation for our sins. What does that word propitiation mean? It means literally the atoning victim. It means the one who uh, stands in place. Uh, so here he is, the atoning victim for our sins. Why do you think when John the Baptist beheld him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He's saying, here's our atoning victim right here. Here is the one who will be our propitiation. The one who will stand between and also bear the wrath as our substitute. But in so doing, as the atoning victim, will actually pay the price uh, that uh, we owe to God. He will do that. And then from that, you and I are then justified. That means God pronounces us not just uh, not guilty and not just innocent. It goes beyond that. He pronounces us holy. Notice what it says. He says that we might be made the righteousness of God. Uh, that exceeds the righteousness that even Adam had in the Garden of Eden. Adam was a righteous man in the Garden. He had done nothing wrong. He was a good, natural, moral man. <laughs> He stood righteous before God. He had nothing that could be charged against him uh, before he fell. Now, but thankfully, we've not been, through Jesus' uh, death on the cross, we've not just been given the righteousness of Adam. That might sound pretty good. I mean, here's Adam, a good, natural man. When God sees him, he says, not only was it good, but very good in the image of God. But yet he was still able to fall. So what does it say here that you and I have been, the transaction did this for us. It didn't just give us the righteousness that Adam had before the fall. It takes us to a better place. He says that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we will have God's righteousness. That can never be taken away. That can never fall. That will never come short. As we think of the doctrine of substitution, and I want to come back to this verse and get a thought in a few moments, but we see that literally take place when the Lord Jesus Christ is arrested. So Jesus is arrested uh, right outside of uh, Gethsemane, and through the night he's judged uh, unjustly. Number one, there was to be no judgment done in the darkness of night, and so the Jews broke their own uh, laws and their own traditions by even holding court at nighttime. And then beyond that, they didn't even have the authority to put the Lord Jesus to death. And they recognize that. So they've got to run over to, uh, to Rome's court. And so all of a sudden, we find that Herod and Pilate come into the picture. 
Uh, first, it's the high priest, then we have Herod, and then finally it's going to be Pilate because he's the ultimate judge. He's the one that has the authority to put him to death, and they want Jesus to die, and so they're going to bring him to the proper authority that has the uh, right within the Roman Empire to sentence to somebody to death. And so as he is trying everything he can, Pilate, to convince this mob crowd to let the Lord Jesus go, He finally brings out a man by the name of Barabbas that the Bible says was a thief and a murderer. I think what he's doing here is he's trying to get them to come to their senses and say, this man has done nothing. I find no fault in him. But here's a man that is a murderer and he's a thief. And so he presents Barabbas and he presents Jesus and he asks them, he says, you have a tradition, a custom that one be released to you. And so who do you want released, Barabbas or Christ? Now, any rational thinking person would say, well, we don't want a murderer on the streets and we don't need a thief on the streets. We want somebody uh, who is a good and righteous and moral man. And so we're going to say, let Jesus go. But that's not what happened that day. And so when the Lord Jesus, when they say, you know, uh, let Barabbas go, crucify Jesus. That's, that's the conclusion of the mob. You know, majority rules sometimes will get you in trouble. <laughs> Majority rule in our nation sometimes elects the wrong people to office. A majority rule in the Bible sometimes finds you in a a bad situation. It was the majority of the 12 spies that came back from spying the land of Canaan that gave the evil report that convinced the Jewish children not to go in uh, to the land of Canaan. And so they had to journey for 40 years in the wilderness, walking in a big circle, never more than just a few days away from the promised land. And for 40 years they wandered about because they listened to the majority. They listened to the majority that day as well. They said, give us Barabbas. He says, what do I do with Jesus? Crucify him. He says, shall I crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. Think about that. We have no king but Caesar. So literally, when Jesus went to the cross, he went on the cross of another man. That cross was not his cross. It didn't belong to him. That cross was appointed to Barabbas, and Barabbas to that cross. Barabbas, my beloved, is a picture of you and I. Uh, here we were, uh, thieves and murderers. Say, how? Well, wait a minute. I've never stolen. I've never taken. Yes, we have. We have, if nothing else, through our own actions, we have separated ourselves not only by the fact that we are sinners by nature, but by being sinners by practice. Uh, we have slain our relationship with God the Father if it weren't for uh, the beautiful work of reconciliation that the Lord Jesus did on our behalf. So you and I are all guilty of theft and murder, whether we want to recognize that or not. And a lot of times we've put to death friendships, we've put to uh, death relationships. We've done a lot of things that have uh, taken from others or put to death things that we should not have. And so here's Barabbas, a man that is a thief and a murderer, a picture of you and I in our state of nature. And yet they say, we don't want Christ, we want Barabbas, give us Barabbas, and then you crucify Jesus. So Jesus goes to Calvary on another man's cross, showing a beautiful picture that that was a cross that belonged to you and a cross that belonged to me. And so when Jesus goes there, though, thankfully he goes there as our representative. As we saw last week for Romans chapter 5, verse 12, as by one man's disobedience, many were made uh, sinners and sin came into the world. Even so, by the obedience of one, many were made righteous. 
So just as Adam represented us and brought us to death, the Lord Jesus Christ likewise is our representative, but a representative that brings us to life and gives us life. And so here goes Jesus to Calvary or Golgotha's hill, and as he does so, he does so on the cross of another man, showing that even in the physical activity of going to Calvary's hill, he is a substitute. He's not the one that was supposed to be going up Calvary's hill that day. It was supposed to be a man by the name of Barabbas who was a murderer and a thief, a picture of you and I in our death and sin. That's exactly who we were and what we were guilty of. But the Lord Jesus Christ uh, goes to Calvary on another man's cross to deliver uh, the children of God uh, throughout all of history from the first sinner that was an elected God to the very last one and there he bore our sins. And so he goes again as our substitute. Now we turn to Isaiah 53 a very common chapter of the Bible that we all maybe even can quote that tells us very distinctly about Jesus being our substitute. Isaiah writes and he says, beginning in the verse, verse, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. Now notice, he's going to speak some language in this chapter that's going to make us possibly think that Jesus is weak, but he's not at all. And he lets us know that in the very first verse when he says, he's the arm of the Lord. He is the, uh, the strength of the Lord. That's what that means. He's God's strength. So what Jesus is going to encounter in this chapter is not uh, a picture at all of weakness, but a picture of great strength. And so he says again, Who have believed I report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And then he goes on to say, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a, a root out of a dry ground. Now the root of a dry ground lets us know that's exactly what this earth is. That in comparison to the glories, the beauty, and the fullness of heaven, because of the sin of man and what Adam brought to this world, this world is nothing more than just dry ground. <laughs> Uh, obviously, look, we need rain right now to be hot. And, and this, when I hear talk about people here, we talk about our drought and how it's dry. And, and I still drive down the road and I still see green. Right, folks, if, if you're from Florida and you've never left Florida, you don't really know what a drought is. Uh, from where I live, you know what a drought is. Or from where I'm from, excuse me. When the last rain sometimes comes in April and you won't see any more till winter, and it's so dry that not only is the grass brown, but as the Bible says, it's already withered away. And then you see cracks this wide open in the ground. I've watched it. I've seen, you go out where I'm from in dry years and you'll find concrete slabs crack because people don't keep moisture at the, around the base of their slab and the ground pulls away because of the dryness and a, crag, uh, 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 a slab will crack. So here's, a, here's what he says about the Lord. He's like a tender plant. And as a root out of a dry ground, how in the world could someone so beautiful and someone so strong with such a great mission even come into this world or from it? Well, obviously, we know that in his divine nature, he's not from it. And his human nature was, but he says a tender plant. That word tender does not mean weak. The tender plant means one that's in an alien place. And so he letting us know that this place where Jesus is, it, it wasn't built for Jesus in the sense for him to dwell here. That's why it says that he tabernacled with us. Jesus never came with the intent to stay. And for those who embrace the idea that he's coming one day to set up a reign for a thousand years, Jesus never intends to stay here that long. He stayed here for 33 and a half years and when he comes back, it's gonna be a very quick coming back and going back to heaven. It's not gonna last for very long at all when he comes the second time. Anyway. He says, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire. And that just lets us know that when you saw Jesus in his physical form, there was nothing extraordinary about him. Now, he's not saying here that he was necessarily uncomely to look at, 
uh, it just lets us know that when you saw him, he was just an average individual in his physical characteristics. There was nothing about Jesus that made him uh, shine above the rest. Uh, he didn't come in a very muscular form. He didn't come uh, looking like uh, uh, the artists of this world have painted him. Uh, he was not an attractive man. There was nothing about his physical features that would cause anybody to desire to be with him. Notice what he says in verse 3. He is despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That's where he stood in the eyes of men. Now in verse 4, he says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes are, were, are we healed. Then he says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is talking about Jesus, our substitute. Notice again what Isaiah says. He had borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And then he says, we have all gone astray like sheep. We've all turned everyone to his own way. And so what does God do? God lays the iniquity of us all on him. That shows us again that he is the substitute. He's the one standing in the place that you and I deserve to be. And that's what again Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, For he hath made him, God hath made, God the Father hath made the Son to be sin for us. Now notice, it does not say to be a sinner for us. Jesus never was a sinner. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, he's holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. The Apostle Peter would say, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He never did sin, not one time. The Father would say of him, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus would say of himself, I always do those things which please the Father. So when Paul writes here, he's very careful in the language. He does not say that God the Father made him to be sinner uh, for us. That's not what he says. He made him to be sin for us. He was the representative of our sin at Calvary's cross. Uh, he was not a sinner. Uh, he was not stained by sin. Uh, when he uh, took upon him the iniquity of us all, he stood there as the sin bearer, not a sinner himself. So here he says he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Paul puts that in to make sure we understand that even though he was made to be sin, he knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now let me ask you this question. When you read that first part, he had made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Did Jesus in his nature, did, did him being our representative, did it alter his nature at all in the sense of him becoming a sinner? Was his character changed at all? No. His holiness was not diminished a bit. In that transaction where he became the sin bearer, he did not become a sinner. It did not change his nature. Not at all. So then he says that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So then the question is, as we as sinners, now when our sin was upon him, did it change his nature? No. Was there anything then we could do of ourselves 
to change our nature to be made the righteousness of God in him. We could not. There's nothing we could do. There was nothing, no act, no law. In fact, Paul would tell the Galatians, if there could have been a law given that would have taken care of our sin, don't you think God would have given it? If there was some law, I mean, that makes, in fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. All right, think about any law you want to. The law of circumcision won't do it. <laughs> Acts 15 tells us that. Paul will let us know that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but Christ Jesus. That's what avails is being in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the law of circumcision, will that do it? No. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Paul says to the Galatians, if there were a law that could be given, there wasn't, in other words. So what about the law of baptism? Will that take care of it? Or the law of believing the gospel, will that uh, take care of it? The law of repentance, will that take care of it? No, Paul says, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So whatever law you want to come up with, uh, whatever activity you want to think up, whatever thing you want to contrive to say, if you will do A, B, and C, then that will take care of the matter. According to the Apostle Paul, there is no law that could have been given that would uh, take care of our sin outside of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the world. The only way for you and I to have been delivered from sin is the way we were, and that was through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute. That was the only way, absolutely the only way. So he says, just as our sin did not change the nature of God... Before that transaction, there was nothing that we could change in our nature to make ourselves righteous before God. God would have to take care of it. For he had made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It took Jesus being made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If Jesus had not been willing to have been made sin who knew no sin then you and I would never experience and never have knowledge of the righteousness of God. It would just not happen. It would never have occurred. So in the, in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, he stands there as our substitute. He, he stands in our place. But in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, more than just him being a substitute takes place. There's also a satisfaction that occurs there. When Adam transgressed the law of God, God was clearly grieved. The Bible tells us in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians that you and I are not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That tells me that I can live in such a way that God would grieve. Or I can live in such a way that God would be happy with how I live. I want to live my life in such a way that hopefully when I lie down and breathe my last, it could be said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's yet to be seen. But here, the Lord, in, in the transgression of Adam, God is grieved, and there must be satisfaction made. God is holy. That's one of his attributes. I don't know that we looked at that one, but in his holiness, God cannot just ignore sin. If God could have just looked away from sin and ignored it, he would have and said, okay, y'all are all good. Everything's fine. We're going to act like that never happened. But God cannot do that and still be just and be holy. His, his holiness and his justice will not allow for it. His holiness and his justice demands satisfaction must be made in the matter of sin. It has to be. And for the child of God, the elect of God, it has been. 
Now for the wicked, it will be. There's wrath yet to come. And the Bible speaks of that. In fact, even John asked those folks, those Pharisees that want to be uh, baptized. And he said, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's still a coming wrath for the wicked. For the righteous, that's not so. For the child of God, the wrath of God's been satisfied. And it's been satisfied through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Paul said, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the sins of the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So this verse lets us know that there was a time that God was forbearing sin. Some of you may, especially through COVID, uh, might have applied for a loan forbearance. Um, in fact, at work, I have to deal with that from time to time when we're getting ready to take care of easements because a loan may not be up to date because there was a loan forbearance. And so we have to uh, look into that and see, do we pay the landowner? Do we have to help them catch up on the loan, on the loan so this doesn't bite us and this easement might be in jeopardy? So what's a loan forbearance? It's just putting it off. That's all you're doing. Uh, when you forbear a loan, you're just putting off payment. You've worked out an agreement with the lender that you can justly put off the payment until a certain date or time, and then the payments have to pick up again, and you're going to pay a lot more interest for that benefit, by the way. So if you can still pay your debts, don't take a loan forbearance. Uh, anyway, uh, that's just financial advice on the side. Uh, but anyway, this verse lets us know that God was dissatisfied, but for a period of time, God was willing to forbear the sins of the past. There were sins that had been committed prior to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so God was forbearing them. What does that mean? He was putting off uh, the time for the payment of those sins, and God was saying, I'm going to hold on to my wrath uh, for these sins until a particular moment in time. God was not saying, I'm going to forgive these sins, I'm going to forget these sins, and act like these sins didn't end. He says, no, I'm going to forbear these sins uh, for a, a finite period of time, and then there's going to come a moment when my long-suffering for these sins of the past will come to an end, and they must be paid for. That's what this verse tells us, whom God has set forth, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation, the atoning victim through faith in his blood. That means God's confidence in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So how did God forbear the sins of those in the past? He had this confidence that his son not only would be willing, but also would be able to take care of of the matter of those sins to the satisfaction of the law, the justice, and the holiness of God. So Old Testament saints, those that went to heaven before the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, how did they go? Through God's forbearance. God for, was willing to forbear those sins because he had confidence, faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as soon as Jesus died, what happened? The forbearance of God comes to an end because it's no longer needed because those sins have been imputed to Jesus and he satisfies them. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 talks about this. When the Apostle Paul says that 
Beginning in verse 1, God who at sundry times in a diver's manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Then of Jesus, he says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, he says, when he, Jesus, had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels. He had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So here the apostle lets us know that God throughout the Old Testament day spoke to uh, the children of God in different ways and in many times. He says, but in these last days he's spoken unto us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. He says, and Jesus being the express image of God also upholds all things by the word of his power. He also by himself... <laughs> Not by himself and then with a little help from every elect child of God. Not by himself and also maybe the help of the gospel ministry throughout human history. He says, by himself he purged our sins. How could the language be any more clear? When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he had by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2, when he was made of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and for uh, sin condemned sin in the flesh. And then he goes on to say that God had highly exalted him, why? Because he was willing to make himself of no reputation and die for us. So God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. That's where Jesus now sits. When he had by himself purged our sins. Okay, what does the word purge here mean? It literally means to cleanse. Revelation 1 verse 5, he says, Who hath loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So how were we cleansed? Roman, uh, Revelation 1 verse 5 just told us. We were cleansed through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the agent that I would use for cleansing. <laughs> Story from this week, I won't get into it, but I had to do some cleaning blood this week. Um, that's not what I would use to clean with. Afterwards, there was a pungent odor. It's just not what I would consider a cleansing agent. But understand that the blood of Jesus is different than the blood of us or the blood of bulls and goats. See, when Jesus went to the cross and he shed his blood, that's the blood of God. You say, well, Brother Chris, how can we call it that? Because that's what Paul calls it in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. When he tells the elders at Ephesus, he said, feed the church of God, which he, God, hath purchased with his own blood. <laughs> Peter would say, we were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, nor from the vain traditions received from your fathers. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ, who has a lamb without spot and without blemish. So here you have a man who's without spot and without blemish, who has precious blood. 
Now, I'll tell you, my blood is precious to me, but it's just common, ordinary human blood. I couldn't even tell you what type it is. I'm almost 43 years old, and nobody's ever told me what type of blood I have. Uh, some years I've had my blood drawn two and three times in a year, and I've never thought to ask them, would you tell me my blood type? So far, I've never needed to know what my blood type is. I just know it's human type, uh, and it's just common, ordinary blood. I suppose, I mean, maybe I have some rare type, but even a rare type, somebody else has got it. Um, and hopefully they've got it at the blood bank if I ever need it. But there's nothing special about my blood. It's special to me because it's keeping me alive. And outside of that, I mean, I understand it belongs to the Lord. I understand that. But it's just as, it's as common. But there's something different about the blood of Jesus. That it's called the precious blood. That means it's rare. It's also powerful. It's effective. Paul would tell us in the letter to the Hebrews that without blood, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, speaking of sins. So blood has to be shed. But as we see throughout the Old Testament, the shedding of bulls, the blood of bulls and goats, what did that do? Brought the remembrance of sin. We find that even the Old Testament lets us know that we can't even redeem our own brother for the Redemption of their soul is precious, costly, and you and I don't have what it would take, the currency that it would, that it would cost us. Say, well, I have blood just like Jesus had blood. No, you don't have blood like Jesus had blood, and neither do I. When mine spills, I clean it off. When Jesus was shed, it told us that we were purged from our sins. When I shed blood, it's an indication once again that I'm a mortal, a mortal human being that has a limit to my life, and that when something happens to me that I'm injured and my blood spills, it lets me know it's a reminder that there's coming a day that my blood will no longer course through my veins because my heart will quit pumping. That's going to happen. That's not the case with the Lord Jesus, though. He shed his blood. And when he did, he purged us from our sins. So not only did he stand as a substitute for us at Calvary's cross, he brought satisfaction, but he also brought cleansing to us. And through that, we now stand justified in the sight of God. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul concludes that chapter of Romans, and he says this, who, being Jesus, being delivered for our offenses was raised again for our justification. Now, as you read the book of Romans, you're going to find justification brought to you in, in different ways, different types of justification. It's going to talk about how we're justified by grace. It'll talk about being justified by blood. And it'll also talk about being justified by faith. And then I can go to the book of James and find about being justified by works. Say, well, which one are we justified by? Well, many in this world, uh, especially who are in any kind of reform movement, say, well, we're justified by faith alone. Uh, I'm not claiming that one for my justification before God. I'm standing in this, and I'm justified by grace through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you and I stand just in the sight of God. 
Now, justification by faith is important, my beloved. He, uh, Romans 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That lets us know that if we are going to be reconciled to God, in other words, if God's reconciled to us, if we're going to stand at peace with God in our own minds, we're going to have to do so by faith, by hearing the gospel and embracing his truth. That's not going to get you to heaven. That's not going to justify you in the sight of God, but it'll certainly justify you in your own heart and soul. And that's needful. Not eternally needful, but it is needful for here. Being justified by works, just let others know that you are a child of God. But the justification that I'm most concerned about is the justification by grace through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God justifies us by his grace, and then the transaction happens through the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood. We find that our sins were purged. God was satisfied, and we stand justified. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say then in Romans chapter 8 with this question, he said, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. If God is the one who has said that you stand holy and righteous in his sight, who can bring any charge against you? Now, that's not saying no one will try to bring a charge against you. But that doesn't mean that the charge will stick. <laughs> um, there's prosecutors in this world that maybe just don't like somebody. And we have seen through the course even of our own history in this nation, and as good as our laws are, they're not perfect because it still takes godly people uh, following those laws, hopefully that are honorable, that have integrity, to hopefully to apply them correctly. We have seen prosecutors that just didn't like somebody for whatever reason, maybe their race, maybe background, maybe personal experience with them, whatever, maybe hold back evidence from the defense attorney, and all of a sudden that person looks very guilty enough that a jury is able to convict them beyond a reasonable doubt. That happens. It occurs. Sometimes there's political indictments and charges. We're hearing a lot about that in the news the last few years, and I'm not talking about just the former president, but with other people as well. There's been a lot of political talk of indictments and so forth. Some of them probably ought to happen. Maybe some of them shouldn't, and I'm not going to give it anyway. The point is here, though, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Now, in this world, if I do wrong, I deserve a charge brought against me. But as far as my eternal standing with God and your eternal standing with God, there's no one that can lay anything to your charge. Why? Because it is God that justifies for those who don't know, um, in my youth, I umpired Little League Baseball, and here recently I was asked if I would uh, do that again. And so over the past few weeks, I've gotten back into umpiring Little League Baseball. I'm a little rusty at it, and so the very first night I told the coaches, I said, listen, it's been about a dozen or more years since I've umpired ball, so I'm a little rusty. I said, if I make a call and you don't think it's right, if you'll come to me reasonably, I'll reconsider it, I said, for the next couple weeks. And after that, it's done. And so, uh, sure enough, that night I made a call and I had to stop and think about it. Would I reconsider it? Well, I ended up not, and I held to the call. But, um, you know, as an umpire, I have to make judgment calls. <laughs> and there have been times in my experience that I have reversed a call. As I replayed it in my mind and looked at it again, I just had to trust the replay of my mind. But no, I, I spoke too quickly. I made the wrong call. And so as the umpire, I had the right to reverse the call. I've rarely done that. I don't like to make a practice of it. 
Most of the time, <laughs> here's what I would do. If I made a bad call on one team, I would make it right in the next inning for the other team and somehow try to sneak in a bad call on them and say, okay, everybody's good. Uh, that's typically how I would, that's not how God works. But anyway, I may reverse a call <laughs> after I make a judgment. God does not do that. That's not the way that God operates. And if God has said you are just before him, there's no one that can bring any charge against the elect of God because it is God that justifies. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make the wrong call. He doesn't pronounce somebody innocent and holy that ought to be charged guilty. And he doesn't uh, say uh, someone is holy uh, that is guilty. God doesn't do that. He knows exactly who he died for. So he knows exactly who to pronounce just. So when the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross as a substitute, he knew exactly for whom he was dying. There was no question in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't just some vague number of humanity, even though it was a large number of humanity. He knew precisely each and every one of us. That's why Paul could say in Galatians chapter 2, who loved me and gave himself for me. For Paul it was very personal and it ought to be very personal for you as well. Who loved you and gave himself for you. Who loved me and gave himself for me. He knew me and he knew you at Calvary's cross. That's why in the book of Isaiah it says that we, not just our names, but we were graven on his hands and our walls. That means our place of strength was continually before him. So when Jesus does that, he knew exactly for whom he was dying. So now there's no one that can bring any charge against us because God has justified us and he knew exactly who he was justifying because Jesus knew for whom he was dying. And then he asked the question, who is he that condemneth? He said, it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So no one can bring a charge against you because God has said you're just. And if somebody tried to condemn you, he says, don't worry. It's Christ that died. He says, yea, rather. He said, even more importantly. He said, yes, it's true he died, and that was needful. But he says, more importantly, though, he also is risen again and at the right hand of God and making intercession for us. So if... It were possible, and it's not, but if it were possible that Satan or some enemy of yours was granted an audience before God the Father to bring a charge against you, that can't happen, first of all. It cannot. But let's just say for just a moment, one slipped in. Then you know what you have as a secondary defense? You have God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sitting at the right hand making intercession. He, all he has to do is say, Father, we've justified them. And it's done. Now, don't worry. No one can ever bring the charge because God justified you. So there's no, no chance of that happening. And no one can condemn you. And the reason that's all true is because no one can separate us from the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, Paul said, For he, God, hath made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God <laughs> contrived salvation in such a way. We sing that song, Long Air the, uh, Long Air the Day Before, uh, I can't get it all of a sudden, that talks about precisely the method, the scheme of salvation. God has put this together in such a way that devils and hell can never unravel it. 
But he's also put it in such a way that man can't do it. It was impossible with men, but with God, all things are possible, and he's taken care of the matter of our salvation. And he says, he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that you and I might be made the righteousness of God, <laughs> taken not just to our state and nature where Adam was before fall, but better than that, to having God's own righteousness. That's what belongs to you and I now because of the transaction that was made by Christ on Calvary's cross. And so now you and I, because he was our substitute, God is now satisfied We've been cleansed and we stand justified because of our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you.